Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Bay Care Clinic Podcast. My name is Alicia Schertz, and I'll be your host for this episode. Over 40% of adults in the U.S. are considered obese, and that percentage only continues to rise, which leads to more and more obesity-related conditions like heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and more. I'm joined today by Dr. Daniel T. McKenna, bariatric surgeon at Aurora Bay Care Medical Center, to discuss combating the obesity crisis here in America and what you need to know about bariatric surgery, including innovations in surgical procedures, who makes a good candidate, and more. Dr. McKenna, thanks for joining us today. Alicia, it's my pleasure. So I want to start by addressing some of these statistics around obesity. I think it can be a little bit alarming for people to kind of hear that, but can you quantify sort of that problem for for us in terms of just prevalence? Sure. So I think that all of us who are as old as me, I'm, I'm in my 40s, realize that the prevalence of obesity has increased drastically within the United States. When we look at the data from 1985, the prevalence of obesity, meaning people with a BMI over 30, was around 5 to 10%. And presently, we're looking at a nationwide Data, a nation, nationwide total of around 40 to 45%, wow. which is a market increase. And we've also seen, likewise, seen just as much growth among the patients with morbid obesity, super obesity as well. Wow. And, and are you seeing this in people of all ages, genders? Does it affect one demographic more than the other? Women have a little bit more difficulty with obesity than men, just slightly. Um, it happens across all ages as, as well. Uh, certainly in the 40 to 50 range is where we see the most obesity, but even in the 10-year-olds and 60-year-olds, we see very high rates of obesity. And it, it seems to affect certain demographics a little bit more than others. What makes the United States and the present world a little bit interesting is that historically, obesity affected the wealthiest people in terms of socioeconomic status but now it's reversed. And I think that has something to do with the cheap food that's available um, that is often you know, fast food or high in carbohydrates, which can cause some of, that, uh, some of the issues with obesity. But also we know that um, among different families that many times if, if a few members of the family are obese, then there probably may be a genetic cause coupled with a little bit of a lifestyle issue as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... Just from, you know, anecdotally, what does that mean for people? Obviously, obesity contributes to a lot of other health conditions. Can you talk about that as as it leads to other problems? Sure. I mean, I think that the the number one thing that probably impacts people is just the quality of life. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it has a huge impact when it comes to diabetes, high blood pressure, sleep apnea, acid reflux, um, arthritis, back pain, high cholesterol. But those diseases impact the quality of life, so it limits what people are able to do and can limit how they recover from surgery, how they recover from injury, how they, how they can play with their children, their grandchildren. So I think when it has that impact on quality of life, it, it really burdens people quite a bit. The bigger issue is, of course, that we know that it reduces the life expectancy as well. Mm-hmm. And the growing concern among physicians is that because of obesity, we can probably anticipate that this next generation of kids may not live as long as their parents. Yeah, and that's that's crazy to think about, and and not to mention too, just the added extra cost for you know healthcare in general and just the health of our communities. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. I mean, I think we we know that 
in the United States alone, there's probably around $25 billion a year spent just on obesity-related problems. But that's that's difficult to quantify to the individual consumer. I don't I don't know what that means to me, but I think that in in general we're looking at around twelve to fifteen hundred dollars of direct cost to each individual that's related to obesity care and health related health health problems related directly to obesity every year. Which obviously I, I don't I don't know that that's a, a small amount of money to anyone. Yeah, absolutely. I want to get into some of the, obviously, why we're here today to talk a little bit more about bariatric surgery as an option. Why should someone consider um, bariatric surgery as, as maybe an option to their weight loss and maybe some of their underlying health concerns as well? I think the, the first thing for, for our patients to understand is that obesity is a challenge. It, it is very difficult to lose weight. And part of it is not an, not an issue of desire. Everybody wants to lose weight mm-hmm. when they when they've been struggling with this, but what often happens is that there are mechanisms in our body that try to preserve our weight where it is at presently. Throughout most of human history, we lose weight, we probably die because it's it's feast or famine and there's not food readily available. So having the uh, desire to eat is, is important. So when people start to lose weight, there's a hormone that drops that's produced by the fat that will increase their appetite. And that usually happens at about 20 to 30 pounds of weight loss that the appetite becomes so great that people probably start eating a little bit more. They don't necessarily cheat on their diet, but they'll keep eating a little bit more of, of what they were eating on that diet. So if you're doing like the Atkins diet, you might be eating a little bit more chicken or a little bit more steak with each meal. And then what happens is their weight loss plateaus and then they see their weight loss plateauing and I would probably just give up and say, all right, well, it's not working and just go back to doing whatever I want to do. The reason that bariatric surgery works is that through some different hormonal mechanisms, we can shut off appetite for about a year to year and a half. And if there is no appetite, if, there, if food is not as desirable in, the, in that sense that you're not starving, if we provide the right education and we get people to understand how they should eat, they can lose weight and maintain it. And then the hope is that their body will have a reset where this new level is what they consider normal. And that's what you'll sort of fluctuate around. So it, 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 it really is something that is very successful, not because you're eating less food. It's actually successful because we've taken away appetite as the main driver of failure of any diet plan. Very interesting. And I know we're going to get into uh, some of those details a little bit later too, but uh, are there certain criteria that make a person a good candidate for bariatric surgery over maybe somebody else? So first off, um, who qualifies for surgery is, is not something that I get to decide. That's sometimes driven by insurance. But mm-hmm. generally, insurance uses something from the National Institute of Health from 1991 that stated that a BMI over 35 with health-related comorbid conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, sleep apnea qualifies. But also people who don't have those health-related conditions and have a body mass index over 40 kilograms per meter squared uh, qualify as well. Many patients may not know what body mass index necessarily means, but that is something that every time you go to the doctor, they say, here's what your body mass index is, and you can see that it's just a basic uh, look at um, what your mass is uh, related to your height. But the more important thing from my standpoint is not really just what you're at, where you're at on the scale, but where you're at mentally. So for someone to have bariatric surgery, it's important that there is a willingness to change and to realize that what's gone on before now is is has not really gotten you to a point where you're healthy. I really want to make sure that we 
we see people who want to make a change, want to start eating better, want to start exercising, because with those other tools and adding bariatric surgery, we see most people lose the majority of their excess weight along with resolving most of their comorbid conditions. Yeah, interesting. And and I know that you guys are really big on to making this a lifestyle change, and we'll talk about that in a little bit too. But let's talk about the specific types of procedures that you offer, because I think it might be interesting to know that there are there are actually different kinds of bariatric surgery. Can you talk about that? Sure. So I, I think that this is always difficult to do without like a, a, a images because people don't know anatomy necessarily very well. Right. But um, so I, I do really essentially four specific types of surgery. One is a traditional gastric bypass. The other is the sleeve gastrectomy. The third is less commonly done, which is called the duodenal switch. And then the fourth is really that we revise other bar- people that have had bariatric operations, whether that's the vertical band and gastroplasty, an adjustable band, or um, other operations. We revise them to additional operations if, if needed that um, to help them lose weight as well. There were a lot of surgeries done historically um, where none of this education was provided. Um, so people had stapling procedures back in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s and didn't really receive any education and failed to maintain their weight loss. And sometimes another operation can be helpful in those settings. The best way to think about these surgeries is all involve surgery on the actual stomach. So we usually go in with little incisions and either remove part of the stomach. In the case of the sleeve gastrectomy, we just turn the stomach into a long, narrow tube. Or we divide the stomach and make it into a small pouch like the size of an egg when we do the gastric bypass, and we connect the intestine to that so that it's bypassing that first part of the intestines. And then with the duodenal switch, it's it's kind of like the sleeve gastrectomy, but then we're bypassing all but about 75 to 100 centimeters of small intestine. So the vast majority of your small intestine gets bypassed, um, which can lead to a lot of weight loss, but it can also cause a little bit more nutritional deficiencies as well. Obviously, you're meeting with every patient individually or your team is and, and discussing this, but how do you decide which procedure is right for each patient? Well, that could be an entire podcast by itself, but really some of it has to just do with what the patient's own personal preference is after they look at the seminar and after they talk to us. But a lot of it has to do with what their goals are along with what their previous surgical history is and sometimes also really what their medical conditions are. So diabetes responds better to a gastric bypass or duodenal switch than it does to a sleeve gastrectomy, but reflux can get worse with a sleeve and a bypass, but some people have had a bunch of surgeries and it's hard to even be able to find the small intestines and and reconnect them and do all that. So in those cases, maybe we might recommend a sleeve gastrectomy, but a lot of it is just very individual as far as what their preferences are. And, And when you look at the two major operations that most places do, we probably do 50 50 between the gastric bypass and the sleeve gastrectomy. Because we're talking about the surgeries, I want to just give patients or people listening a, an idea of what that looks like. So how long is the hospital stay for these and are they done typically? Obviously, there's a lot leading up to the surgery before that that we'll get to in just a moment. But what, is the, what does the surgery look like for most patients? So for most people, we do these laparoscopically or robotically, which means that there's just tiny incisions, um, around five incisions usually. And then the patient's usually just in the hospital overnight. They go home if they can tolerate enough by mouth, their pain's controlled, their vitals and labs all look normal. And, you know, from a recovery standpoint, it's like anything, even though on the outside, it doesn't look like much was done on the inside, there was a lot of work. So people generally feel fairly fatigued for about two weeks after the surgery. Mm-hmm. So I usually tell people to take at least two weeks off of work. Then they, um, 
the, I mean, so the only other really restriction that we do is, is say, you know, no lifting more than maybe 20 pounds for the first uh, two weeks. And after that, they can do whatever they want. And then we have a specific way that we advance their diet, basically going from liquids for a week and then soft foods for three weeks, and then they go back to eating regular food. The idea with the surgery is, of course, that we want them to eat normal food. We don't want people to be eating baby food and uh-huh. to be vomiting and things like that. We want them to be eating normal food. Um, it's just that we want them to make the right choices when it comes to food. The simplest way to think about what we request of patients from a diet standpoint is that they they live in a low-carb world where they eat protein, low-fat dairy, vegetables, and try to avoid um, you know pastas and breads and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a great segue because obviously we've talked about it earlier that this is really just the first step in, in, in a lifestyle change for these patients. So can you talk a little bit about what that means as far as what happens after the surgery? Well, you know, when, when we, when people show up and they want to have surgery, there's, there, you know, there's a process that they go through beforehand, which involves supervised weight loss and meeting with the dietitians, And we also have them see a psychologist because we want to make sure that all the, I guess, ducks are in a row to really, propel them to success after surgery. So after surgery, what we're really looking for is to make sure that people are going to make a lifestyle change. And it doesn't have to be drastic necessarily for some people, but we want them to embrace um, dietary compliance. I mean, don't go and eat you know, a Snickers bar every time you get under stress. Um, and we also want them to start exercising and making sure they're taking enough water in and and really, you know, begin to make those changes because once those changes become habits, um, you know, we know that people will maintain the weight loss um, and, and remain healthy the rest of their life. The difficult thing is if somebody just has a surgery and there's no real lifestyle change, ultimately they'll probably go back to doing what they've done before and then regain the weight. And I think most people have, have met people who had bariatric surgery who lost some of the weight but then regained it or Mm-hmm. Or you know, never really lost enough to to make a difference. And it's not really that they did something wrong. It's just that the the their body just you know is going to fight them every step of the way, and and they ended up um, kind of slipping up. And and once that happens, it can be difficult, not just from a a physical standpoint, but emotionally, it's very difficult on patients when when they've um, not been successful with the surgery. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you even brought it up, but I I think that's an important distinction with your team, just the entire process that is put in place to really set these patients up for success is is a lot different than it used to be. Can you talk a little bit about that, the team approach that you guys have and and what is available to patients just as far as resources? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, if if you would have had bariatric surgery 20 years ago or 10 years ago in some places, you showed up the day of uh, your clinic appointment, you said, I want bariatric surgery. And the surgeon would say, okay. And they would do it. And you might see them once or twice afterwards, and then you're on your own. Likewise, that's what you get if you want to go to Mexico and have bariatric surgery as well. But we know that that's not really fair to the patients. We know that there really is one chance that this is going to be successful. And that one chance, we want to have them as well prepared as possible. So the, the team that we have is we have a clinical care coordinator who's a nurse named Becky Kuhn. Um, we have a physician assistant, Laura, who is has, actually has a background in primary care, so she's very good at, at managing 
people's you know high blood pressure medications and diabetes medications um, before and after surgery. And then we have a team of dietitians that work with us to make sure that we instruct patients on diet before and after surgery. We have a psychologist who does sort of the the assessment before um, surgery. We also have a psychiatrist who does group counseling and is a specialist in eating disorders. So we'll sometimes do individual counseling for some of our patients. Um, and then we we often use it's been different different now with uh, COVID, but we also used the Sports Medicine Center and had people getting um, individual uh, consultations over there for exercise and, and those sorts of things. But now with COVID, we've kind of limited that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And and just having that amount of resources, can you reiterate again what that means for patients just as far as their success rate and, and maybe some of the things that you've seen with your bariatric patients because of this process? Well, I mean, it, it means that we we certainly don't do every surgery that we could. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to make sure that patients are are going to be successful. So we do see that patients that go through this whole process um, tend to have better long-term success. It doesn't mean that everybody. Some people, you know, struggle still. Some people may have had something happen in their life that they turn back to food. But for the most part, yeah, we know that people that do this are more likely to be part of the 80 to 90 percent of successful bariatric patients. What about some of those residual things? I think that's pretty impactful from from a patient perspective, we've seen some pretty incredible testimonials from your patients just as far as things that they no longer need to do, they no longer need to take um, just for, you know, those other conditions caused by maybe overweight. Yes. I mean, we know that patients that have bariatric surgery see their diabetes resolve at remarkable rates, depending on which operation they have. But we're not talking about weight loss causing their diabetes resolve. We're talking about the surgery. So the patient with a gastric bypass um, who may have diabetes may leave the hospital on no medications for their diabetes any longer. And likewise, when it comes to acid reflux, that people have a gastric bypass, their reflux is gone immediately because we've diverted all the acid away from the esophagus. With the weight loss itself, you'll often see improvement in sleep apnea. So probably around 85% of people that are successful with weight loss will see themselves no longer requiring CPAP or BiPAP at night. Um, and we know that high cholesterol, high blood pressure both improve around 75% of the time, meaning that people are down on their medications. And those are big deals because, you know, really what we're doing is we're, we're limiting the impact of those comorbidities on people's quality of life, but also on their life expectancy so that we can, you know, often extend how, how far um, or how long they can expect to live. Um, I think that the the bigger impact for most people is just the things that they couldn't do before that they can now do. And and those involve everything from patients zip lining or going on a plane or being able to play with their grandkids. And I think that that's probably the stuff that's most powerful to me. It's, it's you know, the numbers of diabetes going away and, and uh, people's heart disease improving doesn't really impact people or it doesn't impact me as much. Um, as the things that have improved their overall quality of life. Yeah, and I think that's so true. I think people kind of get into this rut or this system where they just expect that, and this is the way they have to live now. But with bariatric surgery, that may not be the case, and they can get back to doing some of those things that they love. Absolutely. So if I am a patient who is interested or have been exploring maybe some of these options, what is the first step for for people listening? What can they do? Just call the bariatric center. and 
what they do is they they call and say, hey, I'm I'm interested in bariatric surgery, and one of our representatives will start the process for them. Now, sometimes there's issues when it comes to insurance and and where you can have surgery or if you can have surgery, but we always try to verify all that before we put people through anything. Okay. The first real step for for every patient is to do a seminar, and the seminars are online and they're something they can watch at watch at their leisure. Um, it uh, features both Dr. Pierce and myself. And then if they get through that and they, they still are interested, then we set them up for um, an appointment with Laura to do a consultation. And they'll see Laura and see the dietitian, and we'll kind of work the process that way. And then once they're you know further along and ready for surgery, they see either myself or Dr. Pierce. And that just depends on their own preference um, and who's available. So um, Dr. Pierce is... Uh, an absolute fantastic surgeon, um, and she is um, also fellowship trained in minimally invasive and bariatric surgery. Um, and then um, once they see us, once they've gotten through the process, it may be six months, it may be three months, but once they get through that process, then we we basically have them go to a pre-op class and see us, and we get them through to surgery. And they've often always made the change before they saw us, but then obviously after surgery, the weight loss can be qu- quite rapid. And I think that that's important to 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 mention, and you and you did, you know, three to six month process. This isn't going to happen overnight, but it's you know part of a mental approach or a mental journey as well. It is a it's it's very much a, men, a mental journey. It's important to have um, you know a family and friends that are supportive of you through this whole process. That's great. Is there anything else that that you'd like to add, just from a patient standpoint? Um, I think that you know the most important thing I've I've sort of mentioned, but it's important to hear it in a more concise manner, which is that it can be a long process, both mentally and also physically for people to go through um, from the, the day they do their initial call here to having surgery. But it is absolutely worth it when you look at the, the outcomes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. McKenna. I appreciate you taking the time. All right. Thank you so much. Again, Dr. Daniel T. McKenna is a bariatric surgeon at Aurora Bay Care Medical Center. He currently sees patients in Green Bay, Marinette, and Kakana. If you want to learn more about Aurora Baycare Bariatric Surgery or request an appointment, visit baycare.net.